We're beginning our first teaching series of 2022, as the guy said there. We're calling this project all year long the Year of Biblical Literacy, or Yobel for short. Everybody say Yobel. Yobel. For the next 12 months, Redeemer's Fellowship is immersing ourselves in the scriptures. We're reading the scriptures. We're listening to the scriptures. Some of you, it's better that you actually listen than read. So there's audio Bibles, right? There's reflection and study and classes and conversation, lectures, groups. We are absorbing God's word. Our desire is to understand what the scriptures say to us. God is speaking to us, and we want to know the Lord in a deeper way this year. So we're dedicating this entire year. Now, if you're new to Redeemers today, uh, welcome, by the way, those of you online and here at the Harvard campus. I want to invite you to join us, even if it's your first weekend here at church This is a journey for each and every one of us. It doesn't matter if you've never read the Bible before. you got to start somewhere, right? It's a perfect way to start. Or maybe you're an expert in the Bible. You're a seminary graduate. Wherever we are, we all have something to contribute. We all have something to learn this year. Now, there's, there are several layers to our project, Yobel. We've been talking about this. Of course, it's our, there's our cover-to-cover reading plan, which takes us through the Bible in 365 days. You can, you can get a copy of that out in the plaza as you leave today. Uh, but we're also, another layer, we're offering special biblical learning opportunities approximately once a month in the form of classes and lectures. And here's what we've got planned so far. So January, later this week, we're uh, inviting Pastor Steve Walker to come back and join us. He'll be teaching on the 23rd, and then he'll be staying uh, to teach a crash crash course in Bible study methods. You can get online and register for that. That's filling up fairly fast. Uh, Then in February, we welcome Dr. Sanjay Merchant. You may may remember Sanjay from last fall. Uh, He's going to be teaching as well as his, his evening lecture will be, Where Do People Go When They Die?, So that's going to be a fun one. We're going to talk about heaven and hell and the theology of the scriptures in in that uh, area. And then in March, I'm going to introduce you to someone new for Redeemer's Dr. Marek Ireland. She will be teaching uh, on that, uh, I think the 27th, and then her evening lecture will be on the Trinity. We're finally going to understand the Trinity after Marek gets, uh, gets done with her lecture. So that'll be exciting. Lots of things to explore. This is just a, a, a little bit of a like what's coming in the next three months, all kinds of stuff throughout the year. My encouragement is to do Yobel. Okay, do 2022, guys. Do this year. Just meet the Lord in, in your study and in your exploration of the scriptures in a way that you've never done before in your life. So this is going to be a great thing. I hope you're excited about it. All right, let's talk about how awesome the Bible is. That's our series topic for the next three weeks. And I want to begin everything this year and this series with a a passage in Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Specifically, please look at verses 6 through 8. And in this section of Scripture, the Lord is talking directly to his prophet Isaiah, and he's desiring Isaiah to pass along a very specific message to God's people, a message that they need to hear. And it's concerning our topic at hand, the word of God. Here's what it says, Isaiah 46 through 8. A voice says, cry. This is God's voice. And I said, Isaiah said, well, what shall I cry? God says, say, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, 
The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me put verse 8 on the screen. Let's isolate that last sentence. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the flower fades, but the word, what does it say? Let's read that last part. The word of our God will stand forever. Very good. You see, friends, God is telling us something very important here, something important about life and the nature of, of eternity. Everything will eventually fade away. People, at least people on this earth, uh, fortunes, monuments, philosophies, nations, armies, companies, buildings, trends, fads, societies, like wildflowers in a field, the scripture says, beautiful for a time, but everything, well, will come and go. Nothing of this earth lasts forever, God says, except what will endure forever is God's word. Isaiah, God says, God says, Isaiah, tell my people, cry it out, proclaim this message. They're forgetting, they're grabbing on to a bunch of temporary stuff. Remind them, God says. 700 years after Isaiah preached these words, the apostle, the apostle Peter repeats this exact same message in his letter in the New Testament book of 1 Peter because God's word had endured for those seven centuries between Isaiah and Peter. And so Peter says to the church, hey, church, remember what Isaiah said all those years ago. Remember that everything fades. We're preaching this to you now. God's word will never fade. It will endure forever. So don't forget, church, don't chase the temporary. Don't grab on onto what will flee and pass away. Grab onto what is forever. And so today, now, here we are, nearly 2,000 years after Peter preaches this to his church, and then 2,700 years after Isaiah preached this to his church, we, you and I, are reading and proclaiming this very passage, the same message, because why? God's word has withstood all the tests of those centuries, 20 centuries since Peter, 27 millennia now. And despite being attacked and belittled and scrutinized and criticized and banned and panned and, and suppressed and mocked like no other book that's ever been written, the Bible, friends, is still here. It has the same authority and the same truth and the same hope as it did the very first day it was penned. It still points to a loving Jesus. Jesus is still alive. And he's, he's still on his throne. He's still reaching out to a hungry and thirsty and a broken world. The Bible has not diminished at all in its power or its authority or beauty or grace. It's lost neither its relevance nor its transforming power. And so today, January 9th, 2022, we come to the beginning of a year-long study together, a serious study, an earnest exploration where we will not just casually brush the Bible aside, but we, God's people, will be studying and searching this scripture that we hold in our hand, these scriptures. And, and guess what? Long after you and I are gone, we don't know how long, but in the future, Christians will be studying this, and they'll be studying the same thing we're doing. It's just our turn now. Because his word endures forever. Now, I think the Bible's awesome. 
I do. I think the Bible's awesome. I love the Bible. The more I read the Bible, <laughs> the more I get embarrassed about myself. Uh, but the more, the more I, I become intrigued by it and fascinated and challenged by it. In fact, I've devoted the better part of my life to reading and studying the scriptures in such a way that I can occasionally get up on this stage and teach what it says and what it means to people who would come and listen. And so that's me, though. I love the Bible, but I I understand that not everybody else does. In fact, a lot of people don't like the Bible at all. Uh, And there's a ton of reasons for this. I think we could probably be here all day listing what those reasons might be. But I think one of the main reasons that not everybody loves the Bible like I do is because they don't actually know what it is. They actually think it's something that it's not. And so therefore, they're rejecting something and, and so, so for example, like if I were to go around town with a microphone and maybe like a social media camera or whatever and, and just ask a question on the street, hey, what's the Bible? And put a microphone in somebody's face. I think you'd get a lot of different answers. I think you'd get, uh, maybe this is a common one. Well, the Bible, this view says, is an allegorical book that uses fictional stories to convey spiritual truth. It's a little bit like a fable. Nothing in the Bible actually really happened the way that it says it did. It did. It was just a, a fictional, uh, a fictional story, but with a moral attached to it. That's a pretty common view. Or you may get the Bible as just a religious book alongside of other religious books like the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Bhagavad Gita, some other, uh, you know, the writings of Buddha. And if you toss the Bible on top of the pile of all religious books, it basically says the same thing as the others do. They just sort of rearrange things. Or you may get this view. The Bible is an ancient book that is filled with errors and contradictions and tweaks and, and it's been altered so much and passed down throughout the years that we have no idea what it really originally said and therefore it's useless to us. For others, the Bible is a place to just kind of find little inspirational quotes when you're having a bad day and then you post it on your socials, yeah? Still others think the Bible is a self-help book. It's a book about self-esteem and self-improvement and self-governance. Others think that the Bible is simply a guidebook for life, helping to navigate when decisions become confusing. Or it's a, a book that promotes wealth and prosperity. It can be a place for others' uh, values and ethics and morals. Others look to the Bible for societal norms, laws, and the ways to enact governance. I could go on and on. There's a lot of different takes. So the bottom line here is the point I'm making is it's important to understand what the Bible actually is so we know what to expect. What I think happens so often is people think that the Bible is something, and then when they read it, it doesn't meet their expectations, so they get frustrated with it and they walk away. So we need to understand what it is. We need to ask the question, what is the Bible? And I'm going to answer that today. And you can pull out your message notes. Uh, We're going to give you just the definition, and then we're going to break this down. So I'll read this. What is the Bible? The Bible is a library of writings that are both divinely given and humanly composed that together tell a unified narrative which leads us to Jesus. This is my understanding This definition I've sort of cobbled together from uh, the Bible Project, a a seminary professor in Australia, and a church in Portland. And here we go. This is kind of a mishmash. Let me read it again. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divinely given and humanly composed that together tell a unified narrative which leads us to Jesus. So let's break this down. You can begin filling now in your message notes with me. First, 
What is the Bible? The Bible is a library of writings. Now, when we say the word Bible or Holy Bible, this actually, this title comes to us from the Greek language, a phrase. It's got a little bit of a twist to it. Let me show you. The Bible, or we would say in Greek, ta biblia, which, which translated directly means the books. Now, notice the plural there, the books. This little phrase means the books. Now, what, what this is all saying then is the Bible, the book, is one book made up of many books. It is a book of books. It is the book of books. When Jesus talks about the scriptures in the gospel, he often uses the Greek word graphe, graphe. And it's interesting because Jesus refers to the scriptures using graphe in both the singular and in the plural. And he keeps doing this back and forth. And there's, this makes sense when you understand what the Bible is, that it is one book of many books. It's both singular and plural. Do you follow? Now, one way to look at it is when you pick up this Bible, you're actually holding a small library in your hand. How many books in this library? It's small, 66 to be exact. It's broken up into two sections or phases. The Old Testament has 39 books in it, and the New Testament has 27. 39 plus 27 equals 66. The math checks out. Now, this is super helpful to understand because why? Well, you approach a singular book much differently than you approach a library. Like if I just pick up, I'll just give you an example. This is a book I read a few years ago. This is one book. It's called TED Talks, the official TED Guide to Public Speaking. And this is written by the head of the TED organization, which is this online deal where people give talks and, and they post it and they get millions of views. And, and this guy, he wrote a book on how to become a more effective public speaker. And so he, he gives you all kinds of advice about uh, how to stand and and, uh, and how to make your point and how to not use so many. There's a whole chapter on keeping it short. I actually skipped that. Almost all pastors just skipped that, right? But the point is, when you pick up this book, you expect it from cover to cover to be on this one topic. And you read it that way. And you would do so because that's logical. And in this case, it's actually a pretty decent book. It gives you some good stuff on how to, how to speak more effectively, but when I go to a library, yes, you can borrow it. When I go to a library, it's different. Like if you go to the Roseburg Public Library, it, there's all types of books in there. And they're usually organized into sections, aren't they? There's like kids section, and then there's everything else. And there's, there's a fiction section, a fantasy book section, like Lord of the Rings fantasy or history or poetry or cookbooks or plays or graphic novels, i.e. comic books, right? Each of these types of books, you would approach them differently. You would read them differently depending on what section you are in the library. Now, I just, I, I'm constantly reading lots of books, and I usually, I don't know if you're like this, but I usually read about four or five books at a time, and I, I, I'm just super like, that's just my brain works, and so I just finished actually reading uh, The Old Man and the Sea by Hemingway. I never read that. That was an interesting, super easy book to read. I, I also just finished Animal Farm by George Orwell and 1984 by George Orwell, interesting books that talk about the overreach of government, kind of you know, I don't know, relevant right now. I'm reading some theology books. 
and I'm reading some comic books. I have two Star Wars comic books that I subscribe to, and they're by my bedside, and I read those every month. (laughs) Why am I telling you this? (laughs) Here's the point. I approach each of these books differently. I have to. I can't read the Star Wars comic book the same way that I read my theology books. Now, the Bible is similar. It's a small library filled with different types of books. We have to understand this. There's history books. There's poetry sections. There's teaching. There's prophecy. There's apocalyptic literature, which gives us these like very imaginative visions and dragons and bears and fires and just all sorts of waves and angels and things. And then there's law and there's gospel and there's parable and there's epistle, which are letters, letters to people. And then there's things like satire, and there's things like sarcasm and hyperbole. There's all these sorts of types of literatures. And many problems come about when people don't realize the Bible is a collection of different types of writings that we don't all interpret the same way. And this frustrates people if they pick it up and they just think it's one book like this. And they get to it, and they don't get it, and they put it down, and they walk away, and they get frustrated. For example, there's this type of literature in the Bible. It's called the invective. You may know also it's got another term, imprecatory writings. And these are intense, emotional, violent writings. King David, he has several psalms or poems that are borderline abusive. They're invectives. He is so angry at his, at his enemies and what his enemies have done to violate God's people. And so he just emotes and he's like, Lord, burn them down, pull their teeth out. I mean, he's just so violent. And if you don't realize that what you're reading is an invective, it can be very off-putting. You're just like, why is this in the Bible? The apostle Paul does this as well in the New Testament, particularly when you get to the book of Galatians. He's so angry at the false teachers who are mutating the gospel, he actually damns them to hell twice. Yikes. You know, in another, in another phrase, he actually says he hopes they mutilate themselves. And when people read that, they're just sort of like, wow, I don't like this. But you got to understand, these guys are making a point. They're speaking truth to power. They're just using some of this emotion to just, to just help God's people understand what's going on. It's in there. It's included in here. You have to understand this. At any given point when you read the Bible, you could be reading poetry or historical narrative. So much is there. And so the best way to approach the scriptures is to respect the scriptures and to read the books Read the sections in the books the way they were meant to be read. Sometimes they want to be taken literally. Other times, they don't. So we must listen to them and not impose our thinking upon them or our agendas on them. And so we ask, what type of writing is this? I'm in Genesis. What type of writing is this? I'm in in a minor prophet. What am I reading here? You see, the Bible's far from monolithic, friends. It's a library, remember. And boy, does that keep us on our toes. It really does. Now, most of the time, it's very clear what we're reading. This is poetry. This is a song. This is a historical narrative. But may I just be honest? Hashtag real talk for a second. 
there's some places in the scriptures where we're not quite sure what place in the library, what section in the library we are. For example, uh, there's a lot of debate around the first part of Genesis. And there's conversation, and there's frustration, there's disagreement. Is this historical narrative? Is this Hebrew poetry? Are there bits of both intertwined? And so we wonder, how are we supposed to take this? Now, I'm not going to comment on that whole conversation here. I'm just illustrating that there is a debate about the genre of text in the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, certainly also Genesis 1 through 11. By the time you hit Genesis 12, we all pretty much agree that it's, it's historical narrative. And so we just kind of wonder, all right? Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is a big head scratcher. It's debated as to what this is. What is this? What do, how do we take this? Also, the book of Jonah. Is this, is this his history or is this parable? I'm not going to comment it on today. I'm just letting you know there is a few places where the texts give off multiple signals, and so we wrestle with it. The Bible is awesome. You mean that God gave us a book It's complicated, and we can't just figure it out right away? You mean we have to spend the rest of our lives kind of wrestling with it? This book on the the book of books, on God and and sin and life and death and purpose and, and grace and love and gospel? You mean if we just read it once, we don't all just get it the first time? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. And so, don't give up. When you get to a tough part, which you'll get there if you're reading in your covered cover plan, you've already got to some difficult parts. When you get to a tough part, just keep reading. Just keep reading. And some of these things will fall into place. Okay, let me uh, press forward. Uh, Each of these 66 books in this library, though, they possess a unique characteristic that differentiates them from all other books. And these particular books, these 66, they're included in the scriptures because... Each one is a record of God's words, which God communicated through human authors. So these books contain God's words that God gave us, that he wanted us to have, and they came through authors that God chose at certain points in history. And they are accurately and faithfully transmitted they record what God said. Now, we would say in your, in your handouts, we would say that the Bible then is a library of writings that are both divinely given and humanly composed. So guys, no part of scripture is just a person sitting down, thinking up stuff in their own head, and then writing it down and trying to smash it in the Bible, okay? That's not what happened. The, rather, what happened is, we would say, that God inspired these writings. This is the word, inspired. Now, inspired can be uh, a confusing word because the scriptures aren't inspiring like, we don't mean like, a, like a, a pep talk in a locker room that gives you goosebumps or whatever. Rather, inspired is a technical term that explains how the Bible went from God through these authors and then to us. It's a specific God process, inspiration. And the Apostle Paul tells us a little bit about this, actually, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I'll put this on the screen. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
This is a really interesting passage because it tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed, God, God breathed his, his breath, his word into an author who then produced the material that God intended people to have in his scriptures. Now, this word breathed, this phrase, breathed out by God, is actually just one word in the original Greek. It's the word theonoustos, theonoustos, uh, which we would, we would translate inspired by God. This is an interesting word because some scholars believe that Paul actually just made up this word. He smashed together two Greek words, theos, theos, which is God, right? And then pneuma, pneuma, which is the Greek word for wind. And this is just the inflected form of it. Theonoustos. We don't find this word really anywhere else in literature except in this singular passage. Now, Paul, uh, Paul wrote this, but then Peter would give us a little bit more in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He says it this way, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so the prophets, i.e. the writers of the Bible, they didn't write with their own will in mind, using their own material. Rather, it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is important for us to understand because the Bible is not a book like any other book because we're not reading material that is driven by human agenda. Let me say that again. We're not reading material that is driven by human agenda. And isn't that a refreshing thing? Everything is driven by human agenda these days, except for the scriptures. It's from God himself. God spoke. This is what he intended to say right here. So guys, every day we're reading this, even through our cover-to-cover -cover plan. Just, just let that sink in. Let that sink in for a second. This, there's a weight to this Bible. There's a weight to these words. There's a sobriety that comes uh, upon us. The Bible is awesome because God spoke and he's letting us hear what he spoke as we study these pages. But also, all right, people are involved, like fully involved. Now, don't think that the doctrine of inspiration, which is what we're talking about right now, means that, say, the Bible writers like Matthew. Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew, don't think it happened this way. So Matthew's sitting there, and this cloud comes down, and all of a sudden, his eyes roll in the back of his head, and his arm goes up, and a pen, and he starts to go like this, and he's just like in a trance, and he doesn't know what's going on. Like, that's not the, the, the teaching of inspiration. The passage says that the writers were carried along by the Spirit, not carried away with the Spirit. Huge difference. So the doctrine of inspiration teaches us that the Bible authors like Matthew or Paul, Mark, David, Moses, they were all fully involved, they were fully awake, and they were fully participating in the process. 
And this is what makes the Bible different than other religious books. Now, my understanding is the Book of Mormon just kind of fell out of the sky from what the Mormon pastors teach. And then the Book of Quran, actually, uh, Muhammad was put in a trance and was used as like God just, in their view, used Muhammad like a pen. And so the Bible is very different than that. God does not ever, anywhere in Scripture, supersede people, take control of them, usurp the human will. He doesn't erase them in the writing process. God never works that way. He's too smart for that. In fact, here's a principle of life. God always partners with his people to accomplish his purposes. This includes the writing of the Bible. The Bible's a partnership between God and the human authors that he chose, and he works relationally with them through free, creative intelligence. And as you get to know the scriptures, friends, you'll get to know the people who wrote these books. Paul, for example, he wrote 13 of the 27. He wrote 13 of the 66, 27, all found in the New Testament. And as you study Paul, there's so much material, you start to get a feel for what he was like as a dude. His personality is very different than, say, John, the Apostle John, who wrote four books. John's more poetic. John's more mystical. He's actually generally more chill. And Paul is sort of the opposite. He's more theological. He's more intense. He's more invective. Luke is a doctor. Now, Luke actually wrote more words in the New Testament than anyone, if you just count the words. And so I love Luke. He's my favorite. He's very scientific. He's very accurate. He's very, all the engineers love Luke. I mean, let's just be honest. The few of us engineers in here, we just love, because it's very precise. It's very line upon line. John, he's a little bit more mystical. He floats around, but John's vocabulary isn't nearly as impressive as Paul. Paul was like a highfalutin scholar. I mean, he was, he was trained by the top scholars in Judaism at the time. He had risen through the ranks uh, scholastically. So his vocabulary is very impressive. John just talks like normal street level. He's like, he's like, bring your lunch pail, bro. Let's just have some time with Jesus. And he's more, he's definitely more reachable. He's more accessible. And so you begin to see how God leaves ample room for the human element to come into the Bible. The Bible is awesome because it is both 100% divine and 100% human. And this blows my mind. Because how is that possible? Well, it's just like Jesus, I suppose, who's 100% God and 100% person. So in some ways, it's very consistent. Okay, I got more. Let me move on. The Bible, then, is a library of writings that are divinely given and humanly composed. And then the third part, that together tell a unified narrative. All these books, all this material, this is a huge amount of content isn't it? It actually forms a unified narrative. This is a brilliantly coordinated story of reality. A modern version of this are the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. So, nerd alert, I spent the the last 15 years enjoying the Marvel films with my kids 
uh, and going to all these films and studying them a little bit. Uh, and, and I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed 26 of the, so, so there's 27 if you count the 2008 Hulk one with the other actor, but then, I don't know if you know, and so, so the, the, they, they, there's 27 films and they are in four phases, and, but they all tie together. They're brilliantly coordinated. Karis and I, are, my daughter, just recently saw the latest film, Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> such, such a good movie. I literally cried three times in the movie. I'm not even kidding. I'm like in the middle of the film and I'm just, I'm like snot crying. And I'm like, I kind of feel like a loser, right? Uh-huh, yeah, you should. And then I look over and Karis is crying and I thought, okay, I don't feel so bad. So, so powerful, right? I'm just such a massive nerdy person. And so when you're watching one of the films, you kind of get lost in that individual story, but there's always a tie-in to the greater plot. We call this greater plot, generally, we call this the meta-narrative in philosophy. There's a narrative and then there's a, a meta-narrative, an overarching. So there's always a bad guy in each film, but in the Marvel films, there's always an uber-bad guy, Thanos, right? Thanos is always lurking around. He's the ultimate evil. Thanos, by the way, is a derivation of the ancient Greek word thanatos, which means death. So that's free. All right, so the narrative and the meta-narrative, it's all there. Like Thor. Thor in the films is a guy who, when you first meet him early on, he's, well, he's played by Chris, Chris Hemsworth. How, what a dreamboat he is, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Anyways, so, so he's very arrogant and he's power hungry. He wants Odin's throne. He wants his dad's throne. And, and so he's, he's just, uh, he's just super, he just comes off really just wrong, but his pride keeps him from it. And then throughout the movies, he gets humbled over and over again, deeply humbled. But then when it comes his time to rule, he doesn't want the throne anymore. He walks away from it. Thor changes as the narrative unfolds. And depending where you are in the storyline, you get different Thors. There's different roles. There's different characters. He changes. He morphs. Now, as good as Marvel films were, they actually just copied the Bible in terms of structure and form and function. Scripture is really the master story. It's the OG unified story. For example, the role of the law changes as the biblical narrative unfolds. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you get to Exodus, you see Moses, right? And you see about halfway through Exodus, God begins to set down laws, and he gives the law through Moses. And the purpose of the law at that time was to set Israel apart from all the peoples around them, to make Israel distinctive, to separate them to keep Israel from assimilating into Moab and the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Syrians and the Egyptians, right? The Philistines to stay separate until the Messiah was drawn out from Israel. So there's 613 laws and there's so many and they involve lots of different areas. There's food and clothing laws. There's tattoos and hairstyles. There's temple sacrifice. There's purity laws. There's all these laws. But the role of the law, which was the center of all life, and it was for a purpose, it was for a time, it was for a season, was to keep Israel separate from the nations. 
But then the role of the law changes when the gospel comes into play, as God's narrative unfolds. And so in light of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the law isn't needed anymore to keep us apart from the other nations and from the culture. In fact, the opposite is now true. Now that we have the gospel to purify us and to, and to make us righteous and holy, the Lord sends us into the culture. He sends us into the earth, into the neighborhoods to co-mingle and to, and to teach and to preach the message of the gospel. The Bible is a unified narrative, and depending on where you are in the narrative, things change over time. It doesn't contradict each other, it just changes. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, he says it this way, the reason for our confusion is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our life. It is not that. Rather, it comprises a single story, telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. The meta-narrative of the scriptures points to something. It culminates into a single point of truth and reality. Keller teaches us this. What is it? Jesus. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divinely given and humanly composed that together tell a unified narrative which leads us to Jesus. This is how I'm going to end today. The point of the Bible. The meta-narrative. The story of the Bible marches to a clear center point. And it all leads to Jesus. Next week, come back, and that's what we're going to cover. But for now, let's take this in and let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you so much for your holy scriptures. There's beautiful complexity in, and there's beautiful variety in them. And I'm praying that you would make us skilled people at studying your scriptures. Lord, help us to not get frustrated and walk away. Lord, help us to stick with it. Lord, help us to understand what it is that we're reading, the type of where we are in the library, so to speak. And Lord, help us understand that the overarching narrative, the meta-narrative is about Jesus and what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished and what he will accomplish in our behalf. And so for now, Lord, this is enough. What is the Bible? It is your holy word, and it stands forever. We thank you for that, and we pray this now in your name. Amen. Amen.